Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We are currently in our series, State of the Union. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. If you are visiting with us here at Hope, we are currently in the middle of a series. Normally at Hope, we are preaching straight through books of the Bible, but occasionally we take a season out and walk through a series and God put a burden on my heart really to shepherd us as a fellowship through some difficult waters that our nation is facing today. And we're in the middle of a series that we've called State of the Union when culture and the gospel intersect. And I want to remind you of something that I said at the very beginning of this series. I said when we started that we are all going to be stretched as we walk through this series together. Now, I don't think all of you believed me when I said it at the beginning. But after the first two weekends, I think that many of you are coming to believe me that it's going to stretch all of us. I know that as you process this content with the Lord, and as you discuss it in small groups, there's going to be some tension. That's why I told you from the beginning that this is going to stretch us. There's some good tension that we're all having to wrestle with personally. And I know some of you in your small groups this week, coming out of last weekend, there was some tension as you had conversations around the principles that we unpacked last weekend. Here's what I want you to understand about that. That's okay. It's okay for there to be some tension as we wrestle with biblical principles. These are weighty issues that we're talking about. They are entrenched in emotion and entrenched in personal experience. And because of that, as we walk through them together and as we try to grab a hold of biblical principles and make sure that we are holistically looking at these issues, there's going to be some tension that we all have to wrestle with. And let me try to bring some clarity to our objective today. Our aim with this series is not to give you all of the answers. I think that's some of the tension. I think some of the tension is you expected me to stand up here and give you all of the answers. That is not the aim of this series. The aim of this series is to give you and I biblical filters 
that allow each of us to hear from the one who is the answer. That's very different. You see, the things that we're talking about, we're going to talk about this a little more in the message, but they they begin to delve into the realm of personal conviction. Here's what that means. There's going to be a lot of diversity within where where each of us land on some of these issues because we're taking the truth of God and we're bringing personal convictions to bear based on what we believe the truth to teach. Now, here's what we can't do as a church. We can't stand up here and preach our convictions like they're absolute truth. We've got to give you biblical filters and allow each one of you to be led by the Spirit of God to seek the one who is the answer as you establish your own biblical convictions. But here's what we wanted to do. We wanted with this series to make sure that we were just looking at it holistically. Some of these issues, I think what we're doing is bringing to bear some biblical filters that maybe we've never used before as we've thought about some of these issues. So we're going to continue to do that today. We began the series by answering the question, who am I? And I gave you a foundational truth that is foundational to the entire series. If you missed week one of the series, you if you're going to get a grade for this, you must go back and listen to week one of the series, all right? Listen, you're not going to understand the rest of the filters if you miss this one. Let's read it out loud together. Above all else, Who I am is who I am in Christ. Say amen. Amen. That means I am first not an American. I am first not a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. I am first not black or white or Asian or Hispanic. I am first above all else a born-again, blood-bought child of the living God. And who I am is who I am In Christ. Now, here's here's something we need to lay down on this today. Come November the 9th, this is going to be over. Now, it may not be over the way you want it to be over. But come November the 9th, this is going to be over. But we are still going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's what that means. We better be focused on keeping relationships more than winning an election. The election will come and the election will go. But we will still be brothers and sisters in Christ. That should establish the priority of our focus during this season. But with that, I want to answer another question this weekend. How should I approach this election? How should I approach this election as a follower of Jesus? Now, I'm going to be as transparent as I can be with you this morning. I have never preached a sermon on this in my life. I've been preaching for 25 years. I've never preached a sermon on the subject that I'm going to preach on this morning. I've never felt led of the Lord like I do right now to preach a sermon on this. But, but, but if I'm going to be totally transparent, I've never been through an election like this before in my life. So what do they say? Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? Right? 
How should I respond to this election? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about voting and how we make decisions about who we vote for. Just got tense in here, didn't it? But let me give you a biblical filter. Here's the biblical filter. The security of my future rests in the sovereignty of God, not the governance of man. I want you to, I want to be sure you hear that. I want everybody to read that out loud together. Let's see, before we do it, before we read it, let's do this. Let's all take a deep breath. Everybody ready? Now let's read it. The security of my future rests in the sovereignty of God. Not the governance of man. You know a phrase that I have, I've been voting since I was 18 years old. I've never missed voting in a presidential election since I was 18. You know a phrase that I think I've heard in every presidential election in my lifetime, my voting lifetime? This is the most important election of our lifetime. You know, if every Sunday I stood up here and my introduction was, this is the most important sermon you've ever heard, eventually you'd go, you know, I I don't really think it is the most important sermon. Here's what happens. We hear that. And even as Christians, I know Christians who think, they think, That somehow, come November 8th, depending on the outcome of this election, the world is coming to an end. Civilization as we know it will not move forward on November the 9th. Hey, God is either sovereign or He's not. The security of our future does not hang in the balance of election. If that's true, that means God and his sovereignty is sitting on the throne going, oh, my word, I don't know what's going to happen on November the 8th. It's going to totally mess up my timeline, my plan, my charts, my graphs. Take a deep breath. God's people have endured Pharaoh, Saul, Jezebel, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, the Caesars of Rome, and those leaders have come and gone, but the kingdom of God is alive and well. It's going to be okay because God is sovereign. And what does it say to our society when we say God is sovereign, but we're as stressed out as they are over an election? There's only one election that matters, and we already got in on that. 
Look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. The psalmist says, Why are the nations in an uproar? What's all this turmoil about? And why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The the word devising is the same word for meditate in Psalm 1. Why are they thinking about, why are they stressing about, why are they constantly meditating on vain things, stuff that doesn't matter? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The word laughs is a word that literally in Hebrew means a strong expression of joy or to be amused. God is sitting on his throne watching the disturbance of the nations over an election on November 8th and he's just chuckling. He's amused. It's almost as if he's going, seriously? You think I started all of this? You think I spoke everything you can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell into existence and somehow I didn't see this coming? Look what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've already installed my king. I'm not waiting on an election. I'm not waiting on a popular vote. My king's already been installed upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll surely give the nations to you as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. Hey, child of God, the security of your future... Oh, well, if this happens on November, we're not our security. Oh, if this happens on November, oh, our future. Oh, the American way of life. Listen to me. The security of my future does not rest in the governance of man. It rests in the sovereignty of God. And listen, we either believe that or we don't. And if you believe it, chill out. One presidency did not make America. And one presidency will not break America. She is bigger than that. So with that as a biblical filter, let me unpack three statements for us today. Here's the first one. As citizens of this country, we have a biblical responsibility to vote.
You say, well, where is that verse that says, thou shall vote in America? Well, let me save you an afternoon. It's not in the book, all right? Let me tell you what is in the book. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. The word subjection that's used right here is a word that means to place oneself under the authority of another. It was a military term. It meant to follow the order. When you're in the military, you submit to a chain of command. You come under their authority and you carry out the order. The Bible says that you and I as followers of Jesus are to be in subjection. We're to place ourselves under the authority that God has established as government. The biblical principle and function of government. Understanding governing authorities are God's design. I should willingly place myself under their authority and obey the laws of my country, the laws of my state, the laws of my county, and the laws of my city unless those laws violate or contradict the higher authority of the Word of God. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And our government is rooted and grounded in the authority of the Constitution of the United States. I got on a website yesterday, White House gov. They define the Constitution on that page this way. It is the supreme law of the land in the United States. That's the way our government defines the Constitution on an official government website. The Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. So Scripture says, then I should submit, I should place myself under the authority of the Constitution unless it violates a higher authority, which is the Word of God. Let me read you the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, Section 1. Here it is. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. One of the things that our Constitution establishes is the right and expects is the right of every citizen of the United States to exercise their responsibility to vote. If you and I are going to place ourselves under the authority of our government, the expectation of our government is that we vote. Here's what's interesting. Let me tell you something you may not have known about this. This was ratified into the Constitution in 1870. When it was ratified, all the states had to go through the process of ratification. You know which state ratified this first? Nevada. We were the first state in the United States of America to ratify this amendment to the Constitution in 1870. Number one. So our state and our federal government have an expectation that you and I participate in the process and vote. But because of this election cycle... There are a lot of people who've decided, (laughs) I'm out. As Christians, we can't do that. 
We can't do that. If we're going to live in subjection to the law of the land, you and I must participate in the process. I want to show you three numbers that, that, that shocked me when I saw them. In 2012, President Barack Obama was elected to office. President Obama received, the first number is just under 66 million votes. Now, he ran against, well, I guess the person running against him because he was the incumbent was the Republican nominee, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney lost the election, and Mitt Romney had just under 61 million votes. So, President Barack Obama won with 66 million votes. Mitt Romney lost with 61 million votes. I want to show you another number. 93 million. You know what that number is? The number of Americans who didn't vote. That means more people didn't vote than voted for either candidate in the last election. We have a biblical responsibility to vote. Russell Moore said it this way. In a democratic republic, the people are the ultimate ground of authority under God. As citizens, we bear responsibility for electing officials for the laws that are made in our name, for the setting of precedence by our actions. Our government is established in such a way that if we don't like it, the only people we have to blame is us. Because we're putting the people there that are there. That's our system. And 93 million people last time said... We have a biblical responsibility to vote. Here's the second reality. We need wisdom from God to fulfill our biblical responsibility in voting. You believe that? Say amen. Listen, I've always believed that. I really believe that now. We need wisdom from God. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to answer by raising your hand. Everybody just got nervous. How many of you desire to vote in such a way that pleases the Lord? Let me see your hand. Hey, look at there. We got unity. In the midst of diversity, in the midst of political turmoil, we got unity. I think everybody in the room just said, I want to vote in a way that pleases the Lord. And listen, that's a biblical desire. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 10.31, look what it says. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. Voting and being involved in the political process is not one of those occasions where I get to take off my spiritual hat and just be something else. Every aspect of my life falls under the umbrella of my submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, my identity being wrapped up in who He is, and everything I'm doing, I'm doing for the glory and honor of God, which includes what's going to happen on November the 8th. So how do I vote in such a way that pleases the Lord? Let me show you two verses of Scripture. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Read it out loud. And without, it is impossible to please Him. So that means faith must be a component 
of how we as followers of Jesus honor God through the election process. Because without faith, it is what? Without faith, we might not. No, without faith, what? It's impossible. Meaning, if you as a follower of Jesus don't bring faith to bear on this process, it is impossible that you'll please him. It's impossible. Let me show you another verse. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from, say it out loud, and hearing by the word of Christ. Here's what that means. It's not faith until I what? Here's your biblical filter. Every one of us as followers of Jesus must relationally hear from God about how we are to vote. Because without faith you can't please Him and it's not faith until you hear from Him. So you know what that establishes for the believer? The primary pursuit during any election cycle is to seek the face of God in prayer. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. The only way I can step out in faith is to first hear from Him. So here's what that means. The primary pursuit during this election cycle is not to debate. The primary pursuit during this election cycle is not just to gather all the information. The primary pursuit during this election cycle is not to argue. The primary pursuit during this election cycle is not to post on social media. The primary pursuit during this election cycle is to seek the face of God in prayer. Because the only way I can please Him with my vote is to hear from Him. And I can't hear from Him without seeking Him. So here's the question of the morning. Are you spending time during this season seeking the face of God in prayer? Not asking God to let your will be done. He already has a will. It's His sovereign will. Is the priority of my life in this season to seek the face of God in prayer? Remember the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not God. Would you please get my candidate elected? (laughs) God's not interested in your will being done. Your will and my will is part of the reason we're in this mess. All kidding aside, have you prayed more than you've talked about it? Have you prayed more than you've read about it? Have you prayed more than you've argued about it? Have you prayed more than you've watched news about it? You all said it. I said it with you. I want my vote to please the Lord. Do our actions line up with our affirmation? Bill Eliff is a pastor friend of mine in Arkansas. Listen to what he said. 
The genesis of everything in our relationship with the Lord is listening. If ever there was a moment in our nation when we needed to do whatever is necessary to get into a position to listen, it is right now. Well, what am I to pray for? (laughs) How am I to pray about this? God, tell me who to vote for and wait on him to nudge me. Is that what I'm to do? What I want to do this morning is I want to ask you to establish a biblical framework through which you pray as you seek God's direction come election day. If I were to ask you, let's just say it was you and me in the room. What's your biblical framework for how you pray about who you're going to vote for? Can you articulate that? Can you answer that question? What's your biblical framework about who you're going to vote for in any election? Not just this election. But what's the biblical framework through which you pray as you seek the will of God in voting? Here's what I want to do this morning. For sake of example, I'm going to share with you my biblical framework that I pray through. But I want you to hear me up front. This is my biblical framework. You have to establish your own. You have to hear from God about yours. Just like when we talk about the arena of giving, sometimes when I'm teaching you about giving and the biblical principle of generosity, I'll share with you my personal convictions about it to give you a framework through which you can pray and hear from the Lord. You don't have to agree with me holistically on what I'm about to say. You have liberty from the Lord to establish your own biblical framework. But for the sake of example, I want to share with you how I pray through it. I feel a responsibility as a shepherd to give you an example. But if you hear me, I'm not saying this is the law of the Medes and the Persians. I'm saying this is an example of a biblical framework. You have to establish your own. If you get that, say amen. Amen. Did you really get that? Okay. Three words that establish my biblical filter that I pray through, my framework. Here's the first word. Character. The character of a leader matters. Noah Webster. Noah Webster, who's known as the father of American scholarship and education. Listen to what Noah Webster said. In selecting men for office, let principle be your guide. Regard not the particular sect or denomination of the candidate. Look to his character. You know the problem for a lot of us in the arena of politics? For a lot of people, politics is sports. And here's what I mean by that. You know me. You've heard me talk about my love for the Alabama Crimson Tide football team. I love the Alabama Crimson Tide football team. I want them to win on Saturday. Every Saturday. As a Christian, as a Christian, do I care about the character of those playing? Sure, I do. But at the end of the day on Saturday, I just want them to win. Why? Because it's sports. You know the problem? What, what, what clicked for me, what helped me understand politics 
Politics is sport for a lot of people. They have a team. They wear the jersey. And at the end of the day, they just want their team to win. Listen, politics is not sport. It's different. Let me read you some verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. The word righteousness here is a word that means blameless conduct, integrity. Blameless conduct, the the lack of ability for somebody to point a finger of blame. Integrity, it says, raises up. It lifts up a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 11, verses 3 and 4 say this. The integrity of the upright will guide them. The word integrity here that's used is only used five times in the Old Testament. Other than this phrase in Proverbs 11, all four of the other times it's used, it refers to the man Job. So Job's life is really a definition of integrity. The Bible says that kind of integrity will guide them, meaning it will lead them in the right direction. But listen to this. Crookedness, crookedness is a word that means deceitfulness, a distorted way of life. The crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Here's what he says. Integrity as a leader will guide the people in the right direction, but crookedness, a distorted way of life, will, look what it says, destroy them. It means to devastate, to ravage. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Listen, I have been reading Proverbs every day. Not not perfectly, but my heart has been, my desire has been, the practice of my life has been. For most days of my life, for 25 plus years, I have read daily the proverb that corresponds to the day of the month. And let me tell you what I am convinced. After 25 years of reading the book of Proverbs, I am convinced that character matters in leadership. Character matters. If you want to ask God for wisdom about who you should vote for, let me, tell you, let me give you a challenge between now and November the 8th. Read every chapter in the book of Proverbs. And ask God to show you biblical principles of character that matter. What is that? It's a filter. Character. Here's a second part of my filter. Convictions. These are biblical values that I hold dear. It drives the way I pray. It drives the way I seek the face of God. For example, life matters. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All human life has dignity and is valuable because God created it in his image. Life matters. Now, because life matters... Because life matters, abortion matters. It matters. Isaiah 44 verse 24 says this. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. Did you hear that? The one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, 
am the maker of all things. The word all means whole, the, the totality. It means all the whole and every single part of something. God said from the womb, I made all things. And look what he said. I stretched out the heavens by myself and spread out the earth all alone. He was drawing a clear line in the sand. There's some stuff that's my business, and it's only my business. And part of that is this principle of life. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should be passionate about defending life from the womb to the tomb. Proverbs chapter 6 said it this way. There are six things which the Lord hates. Think about that. Six things which he hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to read these first three. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and listen to this. Hands that shed innocent blood. The Bible says God hates it. We better be very careful. Aligning ourselves with that which God hates. We must, as followers of Jesus Christ, stand up for the lives of the unborn. We must. But listen, because life matters, this doesn't just mean we're anti-abortion. We must also stand up and with, stand up for and with the women and children who choose life. We must meet needs. We must provide services. It's one thing to sit on the sidelines and say what you're against, it's something else to roll up your sleeves and get involved in what you're for. From the womb to the tomb, you and I must be involved because life matters. But listen, because life matters, social justice also matters. You see, poverty, racial discrimination, injustice, what are those? A devaluing of the dignity of human life. Listen to what Proverbs 31 said. Proverbs 31 says, open your mouth for the mute. In Hebrew, it literally means the one who cannot speak for himself. For the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Why are we to do that? Because life matters. What's happened in many evangelical circles is they've made a pro-life position just to be one thing. Listen, we should be passionate about defending the rights of the unborn. We must stand up and shout for those who do not have a voice to speak for themselves. But being pro-life means something so much more than just that. We need to be holistic, which means all life matters from the womb to the tomb. All life is valuable. And, and we should not stand for things like racial discrimination and poverty and injustice in the criminal justice system. We should stand up and defend the rights of those who are living human beings made in the image of God. David Platt said it this way. David Platt said, The gospel compels Christians in a wealthy culture to action. Selfless, sacrificial, costly, countercultural action on behalf of the poor. For if we don't act in this way, then it may become clear that we were never Christians in the first place. Because life matters, immigration and refugees matter. 
not going to re-preach that. Preached it last weekend. If you want to know more about it, go listen to last weekend. But let me just say this about that issue. For me, I'm looking for a candidate who I believe can protect our nation and defend our border while at the same time demonstrate compassion towards immigrants and refugees as people made in the image of God. It's not either or. It's both and. Life matters. Now, I'm going to say it again. I'm giving you my filter. Those are things, after an exhaustive study of the Scripture, that matter to me in the area of conviction. Life matters. You must hear from God. And you must establish a biblical filter worldview that allows you to seek His face. I'll give you a second thing that matters to me in the realm of conviction. Marriage matters. The Bible says in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God established, designed, created, instituted marriage. Only God has the right to define it. And He's done it in His Word. We are a world made up of nations. We are nations that are made up of states and provinces. We are states and provinces made up of cities. We are cities made up of communities. We are communities founded upon families. And God, in His infinite wisdom, founded the family on marriage. Here's what that means. So goes marriage. So goes the world. Why would the enemy come with such an attack against marriage? Because so goes marriage. So goes the world. God in His infinite wisdom, before He created government, He created marriage. Before He created the cities, He created marriage. Before He even established the church, God established marriage in the book of Genesis. Marriage is the foundation of all of society. The enemy is attacking marriage today because he would love to destroy society. We must be people that defend biblical marriage. We must be. We do not have the right to redefine that which God has already established. We don't. Here's a new thing for me that's become a part of my filters, I pray. It never really been on my radar before the last few years, but I never thought I'd see America get to where we are today in the issue of religious liberty. It's something that's new. I'm still praying through how that applies. But let me just say, as we walk through this election cycle, I've heard dangerous stuff on both sides of the aisle concerning religious liberty. On both sides. Listen carefully. There's dangerous stuff on both sides of the aisle surrounding religious liberty. So for me, those are the convictions that I pray through. I know what you may be thinking. Doesn't national security matter to you? Doesn't the economy matter to you? Doesn't the military matter to you? Doesn't foreign policy matter to you? Doesn't the environment matter to you? Yes. All of those things matter to me. And like many of you, I have opinions on all of those issues. But for me, these are matters of secondary consideration when I vote. 
I can vote for someone that I disagree with on many of those issues, but I cannot vote for someone that I feel does not value life as made in the image of God, marriage as created and designed by God, and defend religious liberty. I can't. That's my filter. Those are my convictions. Now, let me say it again. Those are my convictions. I know the emails I'm going to get. Those are my convictions. You have got to establish your own. What I want you to see as an example, you need to be able to take Scripture, unpack it, and say, here's why I stand for what I stand for. Too many of us are making decisions in this election without going to the Word of God and seeking the face of God and how we're going to vote on some of these issues. We must go to Scripture. Here's the third thing that, that, that fills out my filter. There's character. There's, there's convictions. Here's the third thing. There's counsel. I seek wisdom from others that I trust and respect. Most of this is done via reading. I'll read and research many articles in preparation to voting so that I understand the issues and I've read those people that I respect to make sure that I'm not in left field or to make sure I've not missed a part of the biblical framework and my approach to these issues. So there's my filter. Character, convictions, counsel. You don't have to have mine, but you better have one. What's yours? What establishes the filter through which you ask God for wisdom in voting? Now, here's the elephant in the room question, all right? The elephant in the room question is, if we all use a biblical filter and seek the Lord, shouldn't we all vote for the same person? The answer is no. You're going to have to explain that, preacher. Let me explain it. And I want to try to explain it by taking a little bit of the politics out of it and let you think about another topic. How many of you believe the Bible teaches, like we talked about earlier in the service, that we are all to practice biblical generosity? Let me see your hand. Hold it up. You believe the Bible teaches we're to give, right? How many of you believe the Bible speaks with some specificity about how we're to give, right? doesn't give us all the answers, but there's a lot of specifics in the Bible about how we're to give, right? Then why don't we all give the same thing? Why don't we all give the same percentage? You know why? Because there's room within the context of establishing biblical convictions based on the truth for diversity in the family of God. I know some people who are new to Christ. They've come out of a background of debt. They didn't understand biblical principles of giving. They've come to know Jesus. And they've met with the Lord. They've met with counselors. And they are starting at 1% of their income. Now, you may have a conviction that says that's a wrong place for them to start. But you got to give them the grace to establish their conviction about where they're to start. They have to practice the principle, but they got to start where they feel led to start. I know other Christians who are at a place in their life, I know them personally, who are now giving 90% and living on 10%. Now, let me ask you a question. Which one of them heard from God, the 1% or the 90%? I know what you're praying. I pray to God as the 1%. Amen? 
No, here's the point. There are biblical principles that teach that we're all to be involved in this, but there's latitude and grace in the application of those principles into our everyday life. Nobody's going to come in here and get in a fist fight with somebody because their percentage is off. We're going to extend grace to them. Give you another illustration. The global mission of God. How many of you believe we're to all be involved in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Let me see your hand. If you don't believe that, you should. It's in the scripture five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We're all to be involved. Then how come you and I live in the suburbs here in Las Vegas and some people live in the streets of the Middle East laying their lives on the line for the sake of the gospel? Did did we not hear from God? No. There's a biblical principle. We all have to establish convictions. We have to hear from God and apply those things. God speaks to each of us differently because He has a sovereign will. Now, He'll never speak to us in a way that contradicts His Word. Never. Never. You come up and tell me, God's spoken to me and it contradicts His Word, I'm going to say, that's a lie. God never speaks in contradiction to His Word. Remember when many of you have been through what we call shepherd training? I want to put a picture up here real quick. I want to remind you of something. It's a picture that we call the rings of truth. At Hope, we teach this principle. There's non-negotiable truth in the Bible. What does that mean? Deity of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Heaven and hell are a reality. The Word of God's inspired. What's that? It's not up for debate. You don't get to have a conviction about it. It is in the Word of God. If you're going to be saved, we got to agree to this truth. But then there's negotiable truth. There's truth. But we can debate about it. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Yes, that's non-negotiable truth. When's he coming? That's negotiable. You can be pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib, whatever you want to be, right? It's truth, but we can debate about it. Then there are convictions. What are those? Those are my personal convictions based on the truth. What we're talking about in this arena of elections and voting is convictions based on the truth. It's not the truth. It's convictions based on the truth. Then the fourth ring is preference. Some people like loud music. Some people like soft music. Some people like morning service. Some people like night service. Some people like to wear suit and tie. Some people like to wear shorts and flip-flops. What's that? Nothing to do with the Bible. It's just preference. Just preference. Here's the point. You and I, me included as the pastor of this church, I do not have the right to elevate my convictions and preferences to non-negotiable truth. I do not have that right, and neither do you. We don't have the right. Now, in a moment of complete transparency, taking my filter and praying through this election, there is no clear-cut candidate that perfectly fulfills my filter. Have fun with that, small group leaders. Here's what that means. If you think you got one that perfectly fulfills, you need to pray through your filter again. Here's what that means. We need wisdom from God because we have to participate. So we need wisdom from God. Here's the good news. James 1 verse 2 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he'll give it to all of us generously. 
So here's the last point, and I'm done. We must extend grace towards others as they fulfill their biblical responsibility to vote. Just like we do in the arena of giving, just like we do in the arena of mission, we got to extend some grace, people. Listen, we're going to be brothers and sisters after November the 8th. We got to extend some grace. Get off of our high horse thinking only we know the truth. Get off of it. Listen, this is complex. If you look down your nose spiritually at somebody else and think they just don't know what they're talking about, listen, it's complex. Walk in their shoes. This is not easy. We must extend grace. Verse of the day right here. Ephesians 4.29. Pastor Stan Harvey showed me this verse this week, and I said, that's it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. In small group, in church, over lunch, at the office. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So that it will give, say it out loud, grace grace to those who hear. I like grace. I need grace. Hey, here's what I'm asking you today. I got to vote in this election if I'm going to honor the Lord. I got to hear from God and vote. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because no matter how I vote, some of you are not going to like it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you give me some grace? I'm doing the best I can before the Lord to hear from him. I'm praying like you're praying. I've never been this close to a presidential election, been in the undecided category. I've never been there before. That's new for me, new territory for me. But here's what I'm asking you to give me. Would you give me some grace? I want you to look at the person sitting next to you and say, I'm going to give you some grace. Now, I want you to look back at them and I want you to say, I like grace. Let me close with this quote, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let you go. Russell Moore said this, National identity is important, but transitory. There will come a day when old glory yields to an older glory, when the new republic succumbs to a new creation. We must not shirk our calling as citizens. But we must also not see our citizenship of the moment as the final word. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. Let's pray. Father... Give us grace. Now here's how we're going to finish today. We're not going to stand and sing. I'm about to let you go. When I say amen, we're going to dismiss. 
Here's what I want you to ask the Lord right now. God, am I seeking you more than I'm seeking anything else during this election season? Am I seeking you more than I'm seeking anything else? God, do I want your will or my will? (laughs) Throughout history, his will has included some pretty shady leaders. But it never thwarted the will of God. Here's another question I want you to ask the Lord. Lord, do I have a biblical filter that I'm praying through? Do I have a biblical framework? Listen, you don't have to have mine. You need to establish yours. You may elevate some things into your conviction list that are on my secondary consideration list. That's okay. You have the freedom to do that. You have the grace of God to do that. But you need to do it in line with His Word. Not your opinion, feeling, or emotion. What does His Word say? And then finally, would you ask God to give you wisdom? Ask God to give you wisdom. And ask God to make us a people of grace.